We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Eggman is intercepted by Sam Mills. Steve Smith is going to go all the way. Panthers win in overtime. He steps up, throws for the end zone. Olsen, touchdown! Friends, welcome back in to another edition of the Panthers Training Camp Digest on the Roar Podcast, episode three of this week-long project we're doing here. And our good friends at Blue Wire are putting this out to you every single night. John Ellis here. Billy Marshall comes back to us later this week. Looking forward to Billy's takes, man. A lot of stuff happening down here in Spartanburg. He's been keeping up to speed. We've been talking back and forth. Uh, So Billy is going to be back with us here, I think, by the end of this week. Keep you posted on that. So it's another day in the books for Matt Rule's third-year Carolina Panthers, a team that we're starting to see, as we do with a lot of training camps, some signs of life that you haven't seen in years past. And I want to start this episode with, some of those themes, if you don't mind me doing so. Watching this team over the years, and many of you are in the same boat, if you've been a fan of this team or uh, just an observer of the NFC South or even back in the NFC West days for, in my case, it would be 1995 where the team was scrapping and clawing early and they finally broke through and won some games late and proved to be a formidable team early on. Every training camp and every team within an organization because every season's different every season's their own new team they each have their own identity and, and a training camp has its own identity every day within those training camps have their own identities and you're starting to see just from my observation it's, it's as Anish Shroff would tell you, it's hopium season. So here's some, not necessarily hopium, but just observational stuff that might correlate to what I've seen in the past. Uh, I do not see a team that makes a lot of mistakes. And I'm, I'm referring back to some teams we've seen before with Matt Rule, with Ron Rivera, where you have maybe a young rookie quarterback, or you have a certain player on the offensive line, 
couple days in, if you have a trained eye in this world, you see it right away. If you have an untrained eye, you see it after about two days. But either way, we all see it, either through Twitter's reporting or your own eyes. You're like, oof, man, that's a problem spot. That is going to be a problem come October. And that's the exact thing I said to Stanley McClover, of course, former Panthers defensive end, brother of Brian Burns, when I watched his brother go against uh, Cameron Irving and a couple of other tackles that were slotted to be starting left tackles about a year ago from today. And it was individual drills, warm-ups, but I just could see right away. And when they went to teams drills and they got involved in, you know, 11-on-11s, it was a problem spot, and it really made my gut sink for you guys because there was a hope springs eternal type of mood last year at camp. You know, year two for Joe Brady, McCaffrey back and healthy. Uh, Sam Darnold rejuvenated at camp, looking good early in the season. Robbie and DJ and, the, you know, the defense with uh, Son Reddick and Jeremy Chin. There was a lot of hope this time last year. But there was also visibly during camp, and I was there every day, visibly some problem areas that needed to be addressed, and they just didn't quite have enough time and resources to make that all work. Now, let's go back a little bit and add some context to this. When you go to a training camp, you need a couple of days, I think, to get acclimated and kind of get a vibe on how teams and groups are gelling together in terms of the secondary, the linebackers, the defensive line, mostly the offensive line, and then quarterbacks to receivers. How are those guys connecting? Does one favor one over the other? You've seen, you know, obviously Baker Mayfield leaning a little bit on Rashard Higgins. But now you see Mayfield throwing very good passes in places we haven't seen on these practice fields in about six years, 40 yards down the field to Robbie Anderson. You're seeing things you haven't seen in a camp at the quarterback position in a few years. Getting back to the offensive line, though, the point I'm making here, and it's not one that we talk about a lot, but there is a certain calmness about this operation this year where when you walk around each position group and then you see the full 11 on 11, there are guys that lose reps and they win reps. I saw Burns and Christensen today going at it, and it was competitive as hell. Half of Twitter will tell you that Christensen won it. Half of them will say Burns had him, you know, backwards and out of position. Honestly, they both had a hell of a rep. Iron sharpens iron. Uh, and I love that. But the offensive line last year was immediately... I mean, it like day one, and, and I don't pride myself on being somebody who, you know, brags and says, I told you so, but this was something I wanted to make aware for you guys very quickly that Sam Darnold does not operate very well with interior pressure. Nobody really does, but especially Sam. This is going to be a very um, flimsy long-term experience, even if they start fast. Billy... Marshall, by the way, Billy, who will be back in a few days, was quick to point out after the Houston win, and I think we all kind of felt this, but Billy was the one to say it on this show, that, you know, let's be careful about not getting too emotionally high about this Dallas game in week four. Even I made the comment that, hey, you got a chance for the first time since 2003 to go 4-0, or 2015, I should say, to go 4-0 as a franchise. And usually when you go 4-0, good things happen. And and Billy warned me. He said, John, Dallas is good. 
Dallas has things on their roster that Carolina does not want to see. And they obviously did. They had a run game with power and with speed with Pollard. They had an offensive line that could take advantage of the soft spots. And the winning formula there, and this is what I worried about with this team last year, with all the the movement on defense, it was electric early on. Nothing really changed defensively down the stretch. The defense was still very good. Teams do figure you out sometimes. But like in the Patriots game, Phil Snow's defense was damn good as second half especially. What happens here is you have a defense that is constructed in a manner And it's not by design. It's based on personnel and based on who you have and what fits into what your theories are and your philosophies are as a coach. And obviously, Phil Snow and Matt Rule believe heavily on speed. But it gets you in a vulnerable, susceptible spot against the run. We covered that in yesterday's episode. I'm not going to harp on that too much today. But it's just driving home this point again that last year when we saw, you know, Cam Irving stepping out of a rotational role with with Dallas and other teams, sort of a journeyman role, and stepping in as the, I guess, bona fide left tackle. No real arguments about that either. Brady Christensen obviously wasn't ready or the arms weren't long enough, and uh, who's to say he would have been ready? But uh, Irving was inconsistent, and uh, obviously they had Russell Okung, who was very good when he was healthy, but Irving was a problem, and he wasn't a problem as a standalone it was the fact that you had some very thin margins for error on that offensive line. And you go back to last year and you look at what the line looked like. Taylor Moten, who, who I went back and looked at some of my footage from last year's camp uh, when, when you had Matt Rule out there trying to get this offensive line like he wanted. He called it the I-85 line. One of the best things Matt's ever said, and it, it was true, and it, it, it was like hell on earth getting through the end of that season. I felt like I was stuck in Cherokee County in traffic <laughs> watching those last four games because the line could not operate. It wasn't one person's fault, one Matt's fault. It wasn't, you know, Pat Meyer's fault. Everybody was out of sync. There was no continuity. But there is a process to building continuity or at least giving yourself a chance to have Frontline starters such as Akeem Aquano, we'll get to him later because there were some comments about Akeem that I want to add some perspective to and help you understand that it's not panic season with uh, Aki Aquano. You also have to consider that Corbett from the LA Rams, who, by the way, is a very underrated pass blocker and run sustainer at right guard, is, is a guy that has not missed much time at all, played some of the most snap counts in the NFC over the past two years. And did it for an offense that requires you to do a, a lot of homework and a lot of movement. And he was very healthy and very good in that role. And in the Super Bowl, he made a huge block to give Matt Stafford enough time to find Cooper Cup on that game-winning drive. You have Bradley Bozeman, uh, who I would assume will move forward as your starting center. Now, again, there's some movement here. You've seen guys in and out. Christensen has seen a lot of reps at left tackle one. Uh, and, and getting back to the Icky Aquana point, we know about Taylor Bone. He's your bona fide right tackle. Names I have not mentioned yet. I have not mentioned Pat Elfline. I have not mentioned Cameron Irving. But they're still here. Last year, this time, those were guys that were pretty much locked and loaded as starters. Day one free agent acquisitions. And while we all had consternation about that and, oh, God, how can you do that? 
there were some limitations financially as to what they could do. They were still chasing their franchise quarterback of the future. Uh, there, it was. This has been a strange rebuild, if you want to call it that. But I feel like they're at a point now where, okay, I made the comment on Twitter earlier at one Panther place. Uh, this has been the first camp in a while. I 2019 rivaled this a little bit early on before Cam's foot got hurt where you come every day and you don't see any turf, like a glaring problem. Like, oh, that's, yeah, that's not good. Like, I'll give an example, and I love the kid, but Will Greer, when they drafted him, his camp production, um, he was not grasping, to, from my eye, and a lot of people I think would say this, and I, I you know, Greer, if he hears this, I, I don't mean any harm, but it was a bad camp. He, he did not look um, ready. And we thought maybe with some of the hype around that pick, it was a third round, I believe, and uh, there was a very good defensive back who now plays for the Saints, Chauncey, uh, who could have been drafted there. Hindsight, 2020. Uh, Greer looked, um, it, it was it was very uninspired. And he looked lost. He looked a little bit overwhelmed. Not that he was panicking, but it just did not look good. It looked troubling. Newton was fine until the foot got hurt, and then you're stuck with the Kyle Allen situation and Taylor Heineke. So that that had some good and bad vibes into it. Last year, though, was the year where I came into this and said, you know what, I could I didn't cover pandemic 2020 camp. That was all the stadium. But 2021, I want to come down here. I want to get some videos and look at what this team has. Defensively, right away, I knew this defense was built for speed with Reddick and Burns. They'd be dynamic. I loved Morgan Fox, that acquisition. Derek Brown's always, you know, if, if not a, a, an exceptional player, at least a solid one at defensive tackle. Shaq had a chance to sort of step into a leadership role and, you know, had some good games early on. Uh, it was concerning. Another red flag was Denzel Perryman. Uh, and I, you know, look, I don't want to revisit this and assign blame, but he did come down to training camp uh, in a football helmet <laughs> and got a speeding ticket. And he started hitting the training room. And missed some practices. And I do not know why he was cut. Uh, some people, I'm sure, believe they know why. Or some people might know in this audience why. Uh, I think the uh, explanation given to me was it was a culture fit. And it just he needed to move on somewhere else where he was going to be um, more comfortable. And I think that's uh, sort of a, a code for <laughs> he's a lazy ass. <laughs> I mean, And I'm not saying he is, but I think that was the perception by some people around there, this guy's in the training room every day. He's already hurt. He already got a speeding ticket. I mean, but that to me was like, okay, this is week two of camp and you're trading a linebacker that on tape, look, he is not a great coverage guy, but he is the kind of player down the stretch you could use in the middle of your defense to take on a team like, I don't know, Washington with Scott Turner and John Matsko running it 30 times or you know, Tampa with Leonard Fournette or you know, Alvin Kamara. That was that. And there, so there were signs early on that there was not a real good vibe from start to finish of that camp. Things happen. You remember the JTAB situation where uh, the former Gamecocks defensive back had the very unfortunate accidental helmet-to-helmet hit on Keith Kirkwood, who is back with the team, by the way, and doing great. And Matt Rule and the staff, I believe, I don't want to pin it all on Rule. I'm sure Scott and maybe Dan Morgan had conversations here. They they fired him on the spot. They pretty much cut him that day, JTAB, for going helmet to helmet. And on that note, today, 
Uh, you saw a little bit of fire and piss and vinegar coming from Matt Rule at the direction of one Jeremy Chin. And it's funny because I remember saying last year, if, if Chin went helmet to helmet on Keith Kirkwood, would he be cut that day? No, he wouldn't be. Because Matt Rule's good friend, his good fishing buddy, Jimmy Johnson, I'm sure he's learned from Jimmy over the years, you got different rules for different folks. If Emmett Smith had you know, uh, gone out and gotten a speeding ticket the night before the game or had gotten into a, you know, an incident that, that wasn't criminal, but Emmett would play the next day. Uh, if it was uh, the fifth string, you know, special teams gunner, no, he's cut that day. Uh, I, you got to make decisions as a coach, and, I, and this is where I'm trying to really step back and be more analytical this year with Matt Rule. Uh, I, I've been reactionary at times, uh, and I've also been very fair at times with him. He's here. He's made some adjustments to his staff. And you have to make decisions on the fly like this as a coach. And you you live with those. And was cutting JTB last year a good signal to your team? Was that received well? How, and I don't know if many guys even cared. Uh, if you ask guys now, they're probably like, oh, we're focused on this. It's fine. But in that moment, was that effective? Was it effective? There were times where Matt would... It, it felt like, at least from some of y'all out there who watched the press conferences and some in the media had brought this up, and I think I alluded to it at times, that there was a certain double standard when Sam Darnold would have a very bad game and there would be excuses and the word coddling came up. And look, I, I'm all for a coach having the back of a quarterback. And Newton's back all of a sudden, and, and he almost wins the game with Washington, and then things start sliding downhill and on a couple of occasions, there was, you know, sort of a messaging piece from Matt Rule that was, you know, sort of like the end of the Bridgewater stuff. Like, you know, we can't put a fumble on the ground. I mean, you know, I know Chuba's the running back, but, uh, you know, Cam's got to protect the ball. And, and then the thing with Buffalo with the triple option where he was supposed to, you know, <laughs> hand it off and uh, he threw it out of bounds instead. And uh, Matt, before watching the tape, and again, Shit happens. I, I wasn't trying to kill Matt. I just wanted to investigate it and see, okay, it's a triple option. Was Matt right here? Did Cam screw up? Because Cam has screwed up a lot recently. And it was, you know, a, a post-game presser to call out your your captain, your quarterback, and sort of and get the facts wrong on it. it. It just, it was to me at least, and you talk to some people around the league, it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's that's just one of those things you got to grow from. The Jay-Z stuff. Look, by that time of the year, it was we were having fun. Let's all we were we were punch drunk. Five wins. <laughs> we were all getting through that dog shit together, and we had to laugh a little bit. And I think you know when Matt made his radio tour with our friends at WFNZ. I remember that was a very odd day where he came on with uh, the Mac Attack, uh, Chris McLean, Travis Hancock. I got to meet them finally. Been on their show like a hundred times, but. Matt made the tour. He went on Nick Wilson's show. Congrats, Nick, by the way. You're doing radio up at 92.3 in Cleveland now. Back home. And uh, our good friend Kyle Bailey, I believe he went on all the shows that day. And, and Matt did seem really beaten down by the end of last year. You know, the press conference he did with, with Scott, he came on first. And, you know, we filmed some of those clips for you. And he, he was asked about Sam Darnold. He really had nothing to say. He looked, he looked exhausted, man. And I bet it the hell he was. Um, it's, it's a different world in the NFL, and he knows that. 
So with that said, I've tried to come into this season with like a much more, I don't want to say professional, but a, a fair-minded, almost giving him more benefit of the doubt than I, I should maybe. Because at the end of the day, this is David Tepper's vision, operation, idea, brainchild, all of it. Everything right now, good, bad, and different, is David Tepper's. He is the owner of the Tepper Sports Entertainment Conglomerate. Uh, there have been some kick-ass concerts in that stadium. I'll hand you that. There hadn't been a lot of wins. And uh, the business stuff, I don't touch that because, uh, you know, there's people in this world that can tell you why, you know, things aren't working out well in Rock Hill or, you know, the county down there and, and, and where Tepper might be at fault. I am not going to get into that because that's his to figure out. His job, from my perspective, is to build you guys a winning football team. Now, how do you do that? You... You follow the Steeler method. I think this is maybe part of what his thinking is. And it's hard to know what, what Tepper's value system is as far as a football owner because he can be a little bit elusive. From times I've heard him talk with the unbroadcast team here with uh, Taylor Zarzer and, and Steve Smith <laughs> last year, I think the, the F-bomb, the S-bomb was dropped in the booth. I mean, it, Tepper is a bit of a showman, and he he does like to crack jokes, and he does like you to laugh at his jokes. He, he's a billionaire. He is. Um, he's the polar opposite of a Jerry Richardson, where Je- you'd have to poke Jerry with a stick three times to get him to say hi to you. And Jerry had issues. We know that. But who's to say that, you know, Dave has it figured out? And it's okay. It's okay to say that and not get our panties in a wad as many folks in this listening audience did to me, where I had to finally, in the year 2000, block some of y'all, and I, maybe I'll do a little cleanup, but damn, y'all are vicious. Y'all are, it's like I called out Tepper for, you know, maybe Matt Rule, it's just not a great hire early on, and I was told, oh, you even from some media people, radio guys, like, oh, I mean, come on, you at least give him like one year. I said, I'm not, I'm not, not giving him one year. I'm doing an instant reaction to the Panthers who have a long history of hiring bona fide NFL people at head coach, hiring Baylor's coach, who will presumably then bring in most of some of at least Baylor and Temple people to run high level spots on that staff. Sure as hell it happened. Now he made big money doing it. It's none of my business, but I said at the time, maybe that's a judgment lapse. Or maybe it's just a guy who has a ton of confidence within himself and is in no hurry. But you have to be honest with yourself as an analyst or as a fan even and and say, okay, you know what? I'm all for fans. I was the same way when I was like 10 years old. Don't talk crap about my team. Ride or die. The ride or die crew. Even like the roaring ride folks. This is why I love these guys. They're not like, you know, pie in the sky. Like Salesman, one of my favorite guys on Twitter at Keep Pounding 95, I think it is. Um, salesman, yeah, we're going to get Salesman on this podcast. No, Salesman is like, <laughs> he, will, he will give you uh, a piece of his mind. It, it's not like, oh, guys, hang in there. It's all Panthers all the way. No, there's some skepticism. Uh, you can put all the, the, the logos at midfield you want. You can have all the beers you want in the first week of your ownership with fans, but that honeymoon wears down quick when the losses pile up and uh, they got to start winning. 
Now, now, does David Tepper need to start winning? No, he's a billionaire, and he probably would like to start winning because it is a little bit uh, suboptimal emotionally to go through this grind uh, when you've made an investment and your team is not good yet. Uh, I'm going to say something to you guys that, that might surprise you because I think I've become uh, – I, I, some, I, someone told me at camp I'm a little notorious for my anti-rule stance. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, let's let's have a little talk here with Uncle John here. Pull up a chair here. Um, young young men and women out there, you know, the the hipsters out there, the the, the millennials, the sub millennials. Uh, in this game of life, believe it or not, no matter what somebody tells you, uh, the hot takers out there, the you know the the haters, you can actually change your mind on something. And, and live your life, and nothing bad happens. Isn't that cool? And it's not so much changing my mind. Like I said, it was a reevaluation of how I'm approaching giving you guys information on this team. Now, am I going to maybe take a funny clip of Matt Rule <laughs> doing something hilarious and meme it? Sure, I might do that. I've done a few of those. It's funny. The Ben McAdoo in the big parachute pants with the Giants, that, that's a funny picture. If somebody took a picture like of me like that, I'd laugh like hell. But Matt, during those radio interviews with, with WFNZ, during those interviews, he mentioned some things that did give me some pause. And I know a lot of you guys out there might say, John, don't fall for that bullshit. He's an NFL coach. He's paid millions. It's the nature. And yet, you know what? On one hand, it is. Matt could have been the coach of the New York Giants, if not for Joe Judge. And uh, Matt would have received um, at a five-win rate in New York with with Dave Gettleman as his GM. Uh, it would have been a bona fide shit show, and the New York media would have uh, suffocated him in ways that he could not comprehend. Coming from Waco, uh, even coming from Temple, where you know Temple's Temple, but it's really all about the Eagles and the Sixers. It Charlotte was not hard, unfair on Matt Rule. When Matt came on and said he couldn't take his son to a Hornets game because, you know, the the fans were booing, you know, chanting fire, Matt Rule. Look, I want to make it real clear, and I would say it if I was a part of it. I never, never encouraged that. Because at the end of the day, it's not because I've got a stake in Matt Rule's career. I have 0.0% interest rate on his salary as his representation. I do not represent his interest whatsoever. But in the interest of being fair, it was not the greatest moment in, in our 28-year history where the scoreboard is tilted, Cam Newton can't get in the game, Matt Rule is, you know, just, is he going to college, is he not? You, you hear guys like, you know, McShay make comments that I wouldn't let my son play for that guy, and it's just, we're caught in this time warp, and then you still got Tepper's situation with the soccer team coming into the fold and exciting stuff. And then Rock Hill starting to sort of not look great. Um, it's a lot of moving parts. And, and I, look, I've got kids and I, my, I went to a Milwaukee Bucks game with my son, Jonathan. And there were you know, five or six guys behind, you know, the spectrum crew there in the lobby doing the fire Matt rule chance. It, it's tough. Um, but at the same time, it's not so much that I feel bad for his son. That's not my son. That's my son is the son of a radio guy. 
I don't have seven and a half million dollars and get my dream job coaching the NFL. So I, that's their business. Okay. No one threatened anybody's son, but I get where Matt's coming from with those comments he made. The larger point was it kind of opened up my eyes a little bit, and I have not had the fortune of interviewing Matt Rule. I'm looking forward at one point this season to hopefully having some conversations with him. He makes a lot of appearances on radio here in, in the Charlotte area, and I think it's it's high time we, we schedule something on iHeartRadio uh, down here in Greenville. I hope we can make that happen because I do think that Matt – if you talk to some people, at least that, that I feel like I can trust in terms of their football acumen, their their sense of what's real, what's bullshit, what, what I got to sense with Rule during this stretch from the end of last season up until OTAs, he disappeared. And a lot was made about, where's Matt? He's not really speaking in front of the press like he used to. It's Scott and Dan and... And there was a lot of jokes about, you know, he's just hiding out because he's afraid, you know, there's going to be people making fun of him at the press conference and all that. And messaging has been a bit of a weak link there for Matt, and it's part of the job. I mean, coaches go through it. George Seifert was not always great at this, but he won Super Bowls. Belichick was thought of as a clown when he was first, you know, on the podium. People thought it was a joke. They did. And then he's the goat of coaches. To me, it never made sense to retain rule and just backfill all these Temple, Baylor, and some other assistants with guys that are a little sharper in their roles, such as a Steve Wilkes, such as, a, you know, Al Holcomb has been here. You've got James Campen, Steve, or, uh, sorry, Tabor, the special teams coach, his first name escapes me now. These are guys that have all either been head coaches or assistant head coaches or interim head coaches. They have invaluable input and experience and Matt can finally, whereas I felt like for two years there, you had a bit of a, not an alpha, but you had a guy that would not take his hand off everybody's goddamn plate. Be like, Matt, a little space, please. Like Joe wants to operate his stuff. And it was clear from the very middle, early middle portion of last year that there was going to be some, some strife there because there was some disconnect between what Matt prefers offensively in terms of schematics and rhythm and play distribution and what Joe Brady was going to continue to do. And I don't think either guy was wrong. It's just, you're, you know, different strokes, different folks. When Cosell came on our podcast before that season and said, Matt Rule is a run first guy. Matt Rule, I know him a little bit. He wants to be a guy that runs 35 times a game. And sure as shit, after that Giants game, I think it was, Rule actually came on the podium and said, I think 33 was the number he said. Uh, there, there's some John Fox qualities about what he wants. And when I said that on this podcast, I'm knocking you, Billy. I'm sorry you laughed at me. He said, no, he's nothing like John Fox. I said, well, you know, I'm not saying these guys are kindred spirits. I'm saying in terms of their their core philosophies on offense, it is structuring an offense that is the centerpiece that surrounds a quarterback and insulates a quarterback and allows that quarterback to grow from within instead of saying, okay, we got to drop Cam Newton from 30,000 feet down into this mess. Let's pray it works out. That actually worked out for Ron Rivera a couple times. Um, it's not sustainable. And, and it's time to move on from Newton because Rule is here. Newton is not. And that was fun for a minute. Mayfield we'll touch on in a second. I've got my analysis on him and Sam and these guys. But I am very interested to see how the season starts, how it trends, how Matt delegates 
just give yourself a chance, Matt, to be a good, solid coach in this league for a while because you, you took on a lot of responsibility, and it's natural. And you had to do a lot of the work yourself to make up for some of the gaps in your staff. But those are choices you made when you took this job to bring familiarity instead of, you know, something rock solid. And now you have a good staff of NFL guys. So long story short on that, you see things early in camp that alarm you. I saw it last year. I saw some of that uh, back in 2018 at times at 19. Not this year yet. As we come to you on a Wednesday night, not yet. Three full padded practices down this week. They have tomorrow off. I can't say I've gone to every position group. I've seen the 11-11s. I can't say, oh, God, that bothers me. Akeem Aquanu, let's talk about that. So Matt Rule after practice today. And Aquanu has been chronicled on this very show and uh, many others out there uh, reporting on this. Akeem Aquanu has been rotating in and out with Brady Christensen at left tackle. Of course, Aquanu fell into Carolina's lap in the first round of the draft. As we reminded you during that process, when you draft maybe Evan Neal or Charles Cross, you get a more polished pass protector at left tackle. You get much less in the run game, especially from Cross. Uh, you know, Matt Bowen, who we talked to, thought Evan Neal was the best player in the draft. Everybody's got an opinion on this. I thought Aquanu, for what they're trying to do, I was of the opinion that for what Matt and, and Ben wanted to do, and that's how I grade draft picks. It's based on fit and structure and compatibility. It's not based on, oh, that's a great player, and they'll make it work. No, no. Understand this, that some of the stuff that was run here in years past, particularly when Newton was the quarterback and then when Joe Brady was the coordinator, you had um, some concepts in the passing game that are not going to be in line with what we see necessarily with Ben McAdoo. And the run game will have multiple blocking elements to it. Long story short, to me, Aquanu was the best fit for the physicality theme that they were going for here. They backed that up by getting Dante Foreman. And I think that's also what you watch there. You want to build a team that can lead with power. That does not mean, uh, nerds, put the calculators down, relax, okay, you're, you're going to make it through. That does not mean go Pete Carroll. Although that formula did work for a, a good while, and I wouldn't complain to have 11 wins and you know one ring and <laughs> one yard short of another. There is nothing wrong with the Carolina Panthers having an offensive line that would consist of, let's just say for argument's sake, Brady Christensen becomes the left tackle. We were pining for that this time last year. Aquanu maybe becomes the left guard. Okay, cool. Let's see some Larry Allen strength there. A little less pressure out on an island there. You're inside, right beside Bradley Bozeman, who was a very high-level player in a very complex movement-oriented scheme at center with Lamar Jackson as your quarterback. The run game was a big component there. Go beside him. It's Austin Corbett, one of the most reliable, steady right guards in the NFC. And then Taylor Moten, who just, for the longest time, just give a brother some help. Help me out here. Um, that line can win. Matt said after practice, Matt Rule, I'm paraphrasing here. I don't have the quote in front of me that we're not handing out a job to Iki Aquano. I don't know who asked that question or how it came up. Uh, I wasn't there at the moment, but I, I don't know what elicited that response, but he did say something to the effect of we're going to make him earn it. 
Now, my initial reaction was seeing that, you know, let me hear it first. And I heard it. And that, to me, means nothing. And I'm not trying to disparage the coach here. I think if he was honest, he would tell you, I'm saying that because I'm the coach and he's a goddamn rookie. And I'm not going to come up here and, you know, blowing out roses and, and daisies about how great he is. Now, maybe there's a, a line you can sort of toe there that doesn't require you to, you know, call him out in a sense. But I don't think Ike Aquanu is a very sensitive individual. And I think this is a classic example when you see coaches in the league who have their influences. And Matt has been very open about his influences. Bill Parcells, Tom Coughlin. Parcells prided himself, and he was very good at it, probably the best to ever do it in the National Football League, the the art of the psychology game and how to get a group of 53 guys who have their own value systems and their own mental tics and their own insecurities, or some do not have any at all. How do you find a one-size-fits-all program that works for that? Well, you don't. You don't. What Parcells was the master of, whereas Bill Walsh was the master of the chalkboard and the master of building systems that worked, Parcells' systems were the people, the the mind games. And I think some of that influence is what Matt, and he's not the only one that does Parcells' type of stuff, or Coughlin, who learned that from Bill as well, to, to come out on a podium and say, Icky Aquano's being given nothing right now. If Parcells said that, we wouldn't blink. But it's all about, oh, well, Parcells has got rings. I just, I, I want to get us into a, a situation here, and I hopefully you can take a deep breath with me and, and listen to me here and hear me out on some of the movement. And I've had some questions come through at One Panther Place on Twitter about, okay, at camp, why is Michael Jordan in the interior portion of the line with the ones? Why are we seeing Bozeman in and out? Why is uh, Christensen getting a lot of reps at the ones with left tackle but not Iki Aquanu? I, I think the time for tinkering is kind of wrapping up here. What I would suspect is going to happen here, and this falls into the quarterback conversation as well. You've got a practice coming up on Friday morning at 10 a.m. I believe it's 1030. And I, I believe there's going to be a scrimmage type of practice this weekend, maybe Saturday at 830 a.m., early bird practice. I think by that time, you're going to see – this group of coaches get together, size some things up, look at the tape, trade some notes. Okay, what do we think? We tried some guys here and there. Do we feel like we need to adjust what we think our initial, our, our initial framework of this starting five is going to be? I think in their mind, they know it's going to be a Quanu and Christensen in some shape or form, left guard, left tackle. And the rest of it's already set. It's a no-brainer. What you're trying to figure out is, are you missing anything? Are you, is there something worth looking at? Is there something in Elfline that's better at left guard than either of the guys that we're talking about? Because Elfline has uh, played center as well. And maybe one of the thoughts was, hey, let's you know move Bozeman to guard and maybe Elfline can get back to 17 form with his all-rookie year as a center with the Vikings. But it's been a minute. I just think that's your due diligence. You do it. I, I don't think it was necessary with Sam Darnold taking that many reps with the ones, but that's not my call. I, I do say by the end of this weekend, they solidify their ones going into their first preseason game. Now, they might not all play. I don't know, but at least you set your structure around that and get yourself in a mindset, okay, this is our starting five. And I, I think at the end of the day, it will be 
uh, a combination of Aquanu and Christensen on the left side. I don't think it's absolutely vital that they set those in certain, you know, ironclad lockdown positions right this second. I don't, we, we haven't seen a lot of guard action from Aquanu. And I keep talking about him being a left guard. Well, he's been kind of coming out with a second for first team, second team at left tackle. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not exactly easy to just step in at left guard of the NFL. It's always going to be a challenge. It's a challenge for every damn rookie. Look at Makai Becton. You know, there's a lot of guys. You know, Matt Khalil. There's a lot of guys that go early in this draft that <clears throat> don't don't pan out. And you hope for Aquanu's sake that this offense puts him in a position where he can go Trent Williams on people. He can road grade, get out in space, and, and when he does have to pass protect, he just it's growing pains. You learn, and what Baker can do is, and, and Baker probably will be starting. Work the pocket a little bit. Understand you've got some, maybe some susceptibility on the blind side, week one especially. But you're getting better. The team is getting better. And the reason why the coaching is better, it is. Matt deserves credit. They haven't won a game yet this year. But to me, they have established good momentum, good vibes. I hate that. Good trending here. The good, the trends are looking good in terms of the emotions of the group. Uh, one thing I mentioned on our Fox Sports Upstate show with Jim Zoki, uh, who was on our show here recently, one of the early positive signs about Baker Mayfield, who is uh, in a contract year right now and has a chip on his shoulder uh, the, the size of uh, Chimney Rock, <laughs> Baker, one of his first things he did when he arrived in the Carolinas is there's a picture on Instagram from Colin Thompson. And, and, and oh, God, what's the kid's name? Is it... Um, I'll get his name later. He's a photographer. Garrett uh, is, I think, his name. Garrett took some for that. Uh, is it Garrett? I hope his name's right. Yeah. Griffin. Griffin Zetner. Yeah, okay. It's the Griffin is, with Z. I'll get it later. Griffin took some nice pictures. Long story short, I'm going in circles here. Sam Darnold, Baker Mayfield, smiling together in a picture that was a little viral, and we had some fun with it. But they're out there on the practice field like a couple days after this trade happens, and they're just hanging out throwing. I think people forget that they were the same draft class they hung out there in draft week obviously they're both major high school you know megastar prospects coming out of you know the preps ranks and they both go to major big time universities you know it was obviously baker has a pit stop and then goes on to oklahoma but they're both just top three consensus picks and it was very cool to see you know, Baker, for all the talk that comes out of Cleveland about the negativity side, he does have a lot of that Cam Newton vibe in that I'm looking around at what Baker has done wrong to piss so many people off. And I'm not defending the guy, you know, without merit. I'm just asking what he's grabbed his crotch. He had problems in college. I know that there were some things that weren't great. Uh, last year, people got on him about some of the late game failures. Well, he had a torn labrum. Let's see. The tape from 2020, the late game stuff was good. 2019, just be fair is all I ask. I thought it was very fair to say that Baker Mayfield came down here and tackled things aggressively, head on, and didn't make it awkward for Sam. Sam didn't make it awkward for Baker. And the vibes have been very clean throughout camp. Competitive and fine. I'll say this, Baker Mayfield, from my perspective after watching practice today, uh, has... If he hadn't already, he's solidified himself as the most game-ready 
week one starting quarterback that they have on this roster, and there should be no further consideration, injuries notwithstanding, that Baker does not start week one. Uh, there does not need to be a platoon system. There should not be any any scenario in which P.J. Walker is asked to run a two-minute drill or a red zone. There, there should be absolutely zero excuse because P.J. Walker has had the same limited time in McAdoo's system as has Sam Darnold and Matt Corral. Um, and I love P.J. He's a good story, but, you know, the guy's mistake prone. That should not be anywhere in Matt Rule's realm of thinking, and I hope to God it's not. I don't think it is. I think last year was trial. You know, let's we're screwed. We're losing. Let's try some stuff out and see what sticks. They're they're on a better foundation right now. The offensive line feels with Elfline and Irving as backups. That's where your depth is, and that's why things look cleaner across the board because better players are playing in key positions. Versus last year where you had liabilities starting the season in key spots. I mean, remember, there were questions about the punting game. And, you know, the, the kicking game, we didn't know where we were going. Gonzalez did bloom and, and do quite well. And the, the return game, too, what was going to happen there? They've added one of the best return men in the game in Andre Roberts. Chris Tabor is one of the best uh, special team coordinators in this league. They've added, but I would argue, the best punter of our generation, which is Johnny Hecker, a guy that can also throw you a few bones there offensively. And don't think that I haven't been looking for that at camp, but they are keeping that. Oh, boy, you you tell me they ain't never going to run a trick play, a, a fake punt at camp with all our fat asses sitting up on that hill ready to film it. No, 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 that happens in the bubble. Yep, and there'll be a few of those. Johnny Hecker. So you got some, you, on, on teams over there, you got some things lining up that, that feel right defensively uh we'll get to that in a minute but the quarterback stuff we're gonna go through this uh, ellis williams has been our go-to guy here so I, i'm out there charting some concepts and a few uh, positional drill groups and seeing who's working with whom by the way in the position drills and we, we put this out earlier brian burns is working with the defensive line group with uh, paul pasqualoni and, and those guys whereas frankie lavu is over with the linebackers and I think you see there's a certain, and by the way, Marcus Haynes, who is a little bit light in the box, is with the D-line group as an edge component. So that doesn't mean they're necessarily bogged down. You get it, but it gives you a sense of, okay, you know what? Here's what they've got on each side. Ellis Williams, by the way, has been charting, and it's unofficial numbers, but charting the 7-on-7s, seven 11-on-11s sevens, on in terms of Mayfield and Darnold, and, and here's how it looks, okay, and just gives you... An idea, uh, the seven on seven, which came first, Darnold worked with the ones. He was two of four. Uh, and those first two passes, I charted those actually. They, they were short. They, they were nothings. I mean, these were, you take the set hut, there's seven on seven dump downs. Uh, I'm not saying he didn't do his job. Maybe that's the read. Maybe that's just, you know, getting into the rhythm. Mayfield comes in with the twos right away. All right. And he, he starts... With Rashard Higgins on a drag route, across the middle, Rashard gets some run after the catch. Very nice little throw. And then the throw that everybody's talking about, the it, it, the two throws that everybody's been talking about at camp, the one yesterday, which was the great play-action little roll out of some power structure play-action you know, looks there. Robbie Anderson gets hit in stride on one of the better throws we've seen from a Panthers quarterback in any practice lately. 
uh, from Mayfield's uh, right arm. Now, this was a red zone play here, but Mayfield, and we talked about it earlier, they had a situation where you got three wide. C.J. Uh, Saunders is your uh, backside receiver. You've got two to the right in the seven-on-seven, seven, and it starts out as your X with 88, Terrace Marshall. He motions inside of 17, who is Higgins. So now there's a tight split, a reduced split now, where Higgins is has been tighter into the line, but now he's the outside receiver. And I don't know what route Higgins ran. I don't know if it was a pick, but I can tell you this. The way I had it drawn up is that motion gave Baker an idea of where to go with this ball if it wasn't already read into the system. It was a slot fade. So basically, you know, you're at the five, six-yard line. You go from out wide to the boundary to into the slot tight, and you do a little wiggle, and you go to the, the, the pylon. And at that point, it's all about the quarterback putting the ball on that pylon and on time with the pylon. And this is something, once again, that Sam is not very good with, that Teddy was not good with on long throws or even short throws. It was the time, not necessarily touch or arm strength, timing. And how many times have I told you guys about Jake DeLone? For, for all the flaws he might have had, go back and watch Super Bowl 38. The two touchdown throws he had, one to Muhammad, one to Smith. Look at the timing on them, especially the one to Smith in the first half. Jake was a lot of things, but the one thing he was not was a helium ball thrower. He was not afraid either. Um, Baker on seven on sevens, red zone touchdown fade to Terrace Marshall. And, uh, of course, it was man coverage. And that's what the pre-snap motion gave him an opportunity to process quickly. And Baker does not waste time. Baker sees it. He throws it. If it doesn't work out, fuck it. I mean, there's some of that to him. He's very vocal in a good way at times. Uh, so I, I see in Baker Mayfield some characteristics that you see in quarterbacks that go number one overall. Now he's not, you know, a, a Greek god at six foot five. He doesn't have, you know, he's got a little six foot one kind of, you know, frame there going on. You look at him and say this guy might be a used car salesman down at the Hyundai dealership, and that's fine too. I don't think Baker has a problem with that. Baker can play ball. Uh, the comment that Michael Robinson from Good Morning Football made was, and I think he had backtracked it. He said Baker Mayfield does not have a sixty-four top sixty-four arm in the NFL, and so I, I stupidly in, took the bait and it went down. Okay, let's just look at thirty-two guys that started last year, the top thirty-two in passer rating. Okay, and that's I counted about about half of those that their arm strength, their deep accuracy, putting the ball in a spot thirty yards down the field were either on par with Baker or not as good as his. And, you know, the context, obviously, of the labrum. Last year, I remember Baker's game against Green Bay. I'm watching the tape right now on the All-22. Live, I was watching it uh, over my brother-in-law's, and we were talking on Christmas Day about Mayfield. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, the Panthers are going to keep going for Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Watson, and, uh, you know, Baker is, is, is toast here, and he can't, get anything on these balls and then they had a game at Pittsburgh late in the year where Baker was just so underwhelming but then you just come to find out through talking to people you know there's not a whole lot of people out there just running to defend Baker Mayfield I'm certainly not I'm just trying to be fair about it when Mark Schofield came on my show and said look John I was a quarterback in college and I'm dealing right now with a torn left labrum and I can tell you um it is not like oh yeah it's a left pinky you throw with your right hand no 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 it's (laughs) It is painful to throw with torque and efficiency 
and re- repetition, which is what these guys rely on, when you're constantly, you know, damaging and 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 hitting a nerve with that labor. Where in the brace, it, it, you know, could he have sat out and let Case Keenum played? There was your hot take topics too. So again, be be ready. You know, Colin Cowherd and others will will infect your ears again if you let them because Baker Mayfield is here. I like what I see. I do. I thought he did a good job of getting off of Hollywood Higgins. And I, I wasn't worried about it, but it was good to see that he's getting the ball spread around. Now, DJ Moore's done some good things in this camp. Robbie's obviously caught some good balls, but they're, I think, giving all these receivers opportunities to work in rhythm with both of these quarterbacks. But I'm telling you right now, there is no need to give Sam Darnold half of the one reps anymore. And I'm not saying cut him, he's a bum. No, look, it is what it is. Sam has not been very good ever consistently in his career. Is it his fault? Well, some of it is. I mean, you have to figure this shit out. You you can't expect things to be ideal and and the table needs to be set and let me sit down and eat. No, sometimes you got to get in there and do your own dirty work and, and make it right. And I'm not saying Sam is not tough. He's tough as... As, as John Gruden said about Marcus Colson, tough as a $2 steak. But you're looking for something, a little extra, a little somebody that comes in and says, all right, look, this is bullshit. This is Baker Mayfield to me. Baker walks in and says, look, I'm not perfect. People think I'm, you know, a pain in the ass. This is bullshit. You guys have had like 20 possible game-tying, game-winning drives. You ain't got one of them under your belt. My labrum's fine. Let's go roll. He's got, he carries himself that way. And, you know, the, the stuff with Beckham last year, I, I don't give a shit. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is the fact that Robbie Anderson and Baker spent time today after practice throwing. After practice. The same Robbie Anderson that, once again, on social media, you know, was quoted as saying, no. And, again, it goes to show you, again, quit panicking so much, folks, because... <laughs> these are all guys that are well paid to do what they do. And they're out there throwing a football and having fun. That's a job. It's a business, but Baker's the starting quarterback for this team. He was from the minute they pulled the trigger on that trade. It was inevitable. It was, it was always going to be as Ellis Williams said on our air. The idea is to make it anybody, but Sam Darnold to somehow find a way to get out of that. Classy stuff by rule here to to keep nurturing Darnold and trying to help improve his career. But I don't think there is an inherent interest in Sam Darnold's future from this front office and this coaching staff. I think it's a one-year proposition. And if we can't move him off the books with a trade, that still remains to be seen. I still don't see that happening. Then at least while he's here, let's make sure he's ready to go and let's be constructive with him and help him get better. That's what professionals do. You can't just cut it. You could, but, I mean, why would you? But you're out of the $18 million. It's it's just dead there. You might as well try to find some usefulness out of a guy who at least early last year looked competent. But Baker is, I don't want to say he's running away with it. You, you can't run away with it the first week and have a practice. There ain't nothing to run away from. But there also is an element to this. You can see and sense that now is the time right now to give Baker a little more acceleration forward with control and command 
It's been a good strategy so far, I think. Maybe a little overcooked with three days of it. I don't panic and say, oh, Baker's missed so many reps. Why did they put Sam in so much? It's done. It's in the past. It's fine. They wanted to have a little split thing going on here. I don't know what the purpose was. I would like to ask Matt Rule what was the logic was the logic to, and he would probably tell, well, we want to get Sam ready to start. But the real logic probably is to make sure that we usher Baker in in, in a manner that's not rushing him, but also give Sam one last push with the ones to give him sort of that muscle memory when it's time for him to step up if he needs to come in. Or I've heard the theory they're trying to fluff up his trade value, which if that's their thinking at this point, first of all, that's not how it works. You know, if if John Schneider and, and Pete Carroll decide they would like to try out Baker or uh, try out Sam Darnold, and there's been talk about that possibility, I guarantee you they're not going to go to the <laughs> the equipment guys, the, the, the video guys, the Panthers, get permission to see three days of practice tape from from Darnold. There's no fluffing up any value. His value lies within his strengths and weaknesses on tape and his track record, which has not been good. So if in their calculus whatsoever, they are using these one reps as a trade instrument, it's go for it, do what you want. I don't think it's that. I think they're past you know the idea of, Teams biting on Sam Darnold. You could sign Cam Newton off the street. Uh, you could probably make a deal for a quarterback that is better than Sam Darnold for less money. Um, Sam should get probably the same amount of reps eventually as Matt Corral. There's no need to rush Matt. I know we're all eager to see him play. I'm not saying he's not ready. I just don't know. I mean, I, Baker, I saw enough from 2020 to know what he can do with a good offensive line, a good running game, and good receivers. And there were parts about that Cleveland team for a while that wasn't that great. So, again, I, I'm trying to be as optimistic and realistic as possible in harmony here. They just need to go ahead and, and be committal because you have a window here where you can really capture something not just, you know, from a reps perspective, a scheme perspective, teaching perspective, but there is energy building here. There are positive vibes. It's been a minute since DJ and Robbie and even like, you know, <laughs> TJ Marshall or uh, Terrace Marshall or McCaffrey for the matter. It's been a minute since they have been like, it, notwithstanding the short honeymoon do over with Cam Newton last year, which feels so weird now. It's been a minute since there were some throws in practice from a guy who has been in the playoff arena before, and, and it woke the fans up too there, and it kind of, ooh, wow, it's been a while since you've heard that. You didn't see that from Bridgewater. It was dink and dunk and dink and dunk, and we're going to run out of shotgun, and we're going to, you know, get, get in 12 personnel and run wide, and, and then we're back in the gun, and we're going to, you know, three-step, get it out quick. Um, Baker can do all that. Uh, what what does Baker get in trouble with sometimes? Well, he gets a little sloppy. Turnovers happen. He'll take some sacks. It ain't going to be perfect all the time. But I, I get the sense with Robbie throwing with him after practice, with some of the comments from the players, this is your opportunity to go ahead and hand it over to Baker Mayfield. Make the announcement. Not that Baker needs it. Just get, get it out of the goddamn way. 
there's no need to continue to have this anywhere on anybody's radar to where if NFL Network needs to fill a 10-minute block because there's nothing to talk about, you see it again. Oh, the whole national narrative was Sam Darnold still competing with Baker. Oh, was the Baker trade a failure? No, it hasn't been. Like I said, he's been quite good in practice, you know, elements here. So that's what I would do. I don't know what Matt's going to do. He runs a different kind of ship than usually guys I tend to lean to would. I think it's to everybody's benefit to sort of get that thing tucked away and say, you know what, Baker Mayfield, welcome to Carolina. Here's a starting quarterback, and uh, go get some wins. Um, In either way they do it, it's going to be interesting to see if Corral gets a little more momentum. Uh, Offensive line, we talked about those guys. going to be fun to watch them work in harmony. Uh, The last topic we'll hit here, and it's been sort of a uh, a more broader discussion here on organization building. Uh, In the linebacker side of things, obviously Shaq on the PUP is going to be back soon. You've had some interesting combinations there with the first team with Littleton, Corey Littleton, number 55. And then, of course, uh, you do have uh, Wilson, 57, who I, I honestly, I don't want to ask him or Shy Smith about this stuff, but there were some legal problems with with Wilson. Shy stuff, I, I don't know where he's at, but Wilson was arrested or I, I believe charged with something that was kind of not good. Um and I, I don't know where they're at with that, but I'm trying not to get too bogged down with that. The defensive line, um, keep an eye on it. I mean, I think they're they're in a position now where they'll get through maybe the first preseason game and size up. And I don't want to get people spooked. I don't think there's this huge demon coming your way to run 91 times for 478 yards. You know what I'm saying. The number doesn't make sense. I don't think it's going to be a massacre against Cleveland in terms of them just gashing Carolina. But I think this defense still has to be aware of the fact that what they run is, you know, it's, it's Phil Snow's scheme, which comes way down the line from many great coaches in both the college and pro. There's elements of both. And as the great um, Cody Alexander taught me, who was a assistant under Phil Bennett at Baylor, he was a good friend of ours gave me some instruction on the 404 tight front, which is basically when you have, and you will see this front, it'll be two defensive end uh, sets with Matt Ioannidis and, and Derek Brown as your ends, but in at the 4i technique, which is squeezed pretty tight. And then you got to have a nose tackle. Right now, the only nose tackle on this roster, true nose tackle is Bravian Roy, who, I mean, let, his tape has been good and bad, but not, you know, <laughs> that's an important position here because you have to anchor the middle. And then these ends are essentially working to squeeze everything inside and they want to funnel the running game away from the A and B gaps and into the perimeter. And then it becomes an issue. You have an extra blocker coming in to seal off burns. Your force defenders would be Henderson and Jackson on the corner side, presumably horn at some point, either outside or in slot. And then your linebackers are critical here. They got to fill. They got to fill. They got to fit. They got to read. They got to. You know, it's all about your your ability to get to where you need to go and stay within structure, discipline. Back in, you've got Woods as their coverage uh, safety. He's very good at that. And Chin, obviously, will be your strong safety, and he's been doing that this year. But you know, Thompson, he gets back into form. Littleton, you know, look, there was a lot of bad buzz on him with some of his post. Uh, Rams tape, it, it would 
behoove you to also consider that there were some challenges when he went to his destination last year, which I believe was the Las Vegas Raiders. This is similar to to hear Whitehead. Um, it's not always about the players. Sometimes it's about situations. He looked damn good at what he did in the Rams scheme. So Littleton, to me, would be the guy in your nickel two-linebacker sets with Shaq Thompson. If you have to go three-backers, which you rarely probably will, they won't go base four, three a lot, like you see with like the John Fox, Mike Turgovic days, or even the Ron Rivera, uh, Sean McDermott days. It will be more of a, you know, like a, a, a 505 tight kind of thing. You got three, three, five looks. There's a number of ways to talk about it. Basically, what you're trying to do is get three oversized, two oversized defensive ends that are more like defensive tackles, put them in the four gap, put them in the four uh, technique, I should say, and get yourself a nose either playing shaded off or playing right on top of the center, and you just you command the inside gaps and let it flow outside. And and Luke would Keekley would enjoy this if you hit Luke here. Oh my God, you would keep and you had good players up front to keep him clean. He'd be probably very good in that type of scheme. Luke was at practice today, by the way, as a spectator, as a future broadcaster. Uh, good show, guys. So tomorrow what we're going to do is uh, probably give you some additional content, maybe a podcast to sort of reset the table from this week. Uh, if you have any questions following this podcast, hit me up on Twitter at One Panther Place. We can talk about that. Uh, once again, just sort of observations I, I'm giving you here are all fluid. They, they're subject to change, but I, I build a bit of a, like a pyramid <laughs> on a piece of paper here where the higher up you go, it's not a pyramid scheme, but it's kind of a triangle. The higher up you travel that triangle, the more substantive I feel about certain things when I see them. Baker Mayfield being the best quarterback on this roster, whatever that might be, 15th best in the league. Okay, been a while since that's been here. Yeah, let's go. It, it serves nobody any good to keep drawing this thing out. Um, the cornerbacks, and just one more word on this too, and I think we touched on this yesterday. Um, I got a lot of optimism about what I'm seeing here because Henderson, you know, a lot was made about, does he love the game? Is is he really committed? You know, Urban, I believe, went to his house with uh, one of the assistants and tried to have a talk with him in Jacksonville, and then they end up dealing him for Dan Arnold. And there was a lot of talk last year about, you know, CJ coming in. He's a top 10 pick, didn't really look great at times. Uh, I, I will say this, he looks like he's having a damn good time. That cornerback room with Steve Wilkes, and this is the first place I go every morning when I'm at camp. They do their stretching over there on that one side of the field, and it's that front left corner, and it's usually either Evan Cooper or um, Steve Wilkes or, or both. But when I saw Wilkesy there with, with J.C. Horn throwing little one-handed interception grabs for him, just short ball drills there because J.C. was taking it easy today, and he should. J.C. Horn... C.J. Henderson, Dante Jackson, Miles Hartsfield, who, by the way, is growing on me because Miles is is a multi-dimensional guy in a very rock-solid sense. He's not probably ever going to be a guy that makes all pro, and that's okay. He's a special teams guy. I think at one point he was utilized as a running back in certain situations in practice and camp where they – Thought about maybe switching him. He's a good athlete. And he has put together some good reps at camp. And on tape, 
late last year as the nickel corner. J.C. Horn can also play nickel, and he should. He will. Jackson, Henderson, probably your outside guys. Then you start thinking about what's behind those four. And maybe Taylor's not behind Miles Hartsfield, but to me, Taylor's not a nickelback. So technically, they're right there in the mix together, but you need a nickel. It's a very niche type of role, and, and Miles is very gifted at it. He's a quick twitch guy, good size, right under six feet for that thing. And he's a good tackler, too. Uh, Keith Taylor was out today. You know, and this is a guy who's 6'3", and his arms are huge. And it's, you know, the whole Pete Carroll corners. The John Schneider influence to our good friend Scott Fitter. And, and I, I think with Dan Morgan in the building, too, they like this guy a lot. Stanley Thomas Oliver, who's very good on special teams and has shown at times he can step in in a pinch and be serviceable. So they have literally six deep in terms of guys who have started games. The top three being very damn good at what they do, two of which were top ten picks in the NFL draft and arguably the best defensive backs coach in the National Football League, a guy who has also been a head coach in the league, a guy who is, I would put him in the top ten in in terms of all-time assistants in Panthers history, Steve Wilkes. And as J.C. Horn said, I'll leave you with this, in his press conference a few weeks ago, J.C. Horn was asked about Steve Wilkes, and you know what J.C. Horn said? He said, man, I feel like I've got a cheat code now. And, man, I've talked to people that played under Wilkes. I've talked to guys like Lou Young. I mean, we've talked to even guys on that roster that were not defensive backs but knew Steve well. You know, guys like Scott Turner that were on that staff, and they all say the same thing about Steve Wilkes. Is he is very much going to give you an instant advantage with your corner room. I think this group of corners – I'm going to have to go back and look and see. Maybe, you know, the the 05 Panthers with Ricky Manning Jr., Ken Lucas, and some others. That might have been a better, you know, top line. But this, to me, might be the best one through six group. And even down to the eighth group with some of the young guys, the kid from Baylor. I don't know too many corner rooms that have been this gifted physically and, and looking this good together. And, and it's just something to keep an eye on. It's funny because last year they had Gilmore in there and Horn looked good early and he got hurt and it was patchwork, but you had Gilmore. And I think a lot of people were pissed that he got away, but I don't think people saw, and I certainly didn't at the time, and it's still got to come true on the field, but I think you you bring Wilkes in with the idea that, okay, Steve, come here. We've got C.J. Henderson. Remember him from the draft, right? You probably wanted to get your hands on a big physical corner like CJ. Well, he's all yours. Coach him up. Let's get the technique right and keep him motivated. And like I said, CJ's high energy right now. Dante, look, he's very good. Dante Jackson could, could have an opportunity this year to not only be, you know, a step above what he's been, but also he's carrying the mantle now. AJ Bouye, the veteran's gone. He is the he's the daddy in that room. He's a big daddy. So and J.C., look, we've seen what he does on tape. I'm totally fine with Matt giving him very limited reps right now. I want J.C. ready for the backstretch. I want there's, there are certain players that if you have them in your lineup for the backstretch of the season, you got a chance. You need about five of them. For, for this team, I feel like it's this. So the offensive line notwithstanding, you need them to kind of stay healthy together. But to me, if I'm looking at it, quarterback notwithstanding two, the five for six guys you need, 
past November to really compete. McCaffrey would be one, okay, because that's instrumental to what they're doing right now. J.C. Horn's another. I mean, that's how highly I think of him. Brian Burns, uh, the only, I think, legitimate three-down edge guy you have who can force the run and set the edge but also pin your ears back, they can't afford any losses there. Uh, I would say D.J. Moore is on that list. Obviously, the line, the offensive line, we can't lose people left and right there. But of those guys, you do not want to start losing things from the inside out. So keep your three inside together and healthy. And then from there, I think Chen would be the, the, the other person that you need to absolutely try to stay healthy. Those are things you really can't help. But you, you get to a point in the season where you can finally have some of the luck that the Rams might have or some other teams – that you turn around and they're all their stars are together for the most part. Carolina needs one good run. They've had them before. 2008, you know, they had run like that. You know, 2015, there were some ups and downs. But 2003, you know, there some injuries early on, but they gelled together. I'm just telling you, every season's a new chance to do something special. And for all the turmoil that, that David Tepper has been through and brought himself into with the stuff that I don't care about, the headquarters and stadium, it's none of my concern. And for all the, you know, wisecracks about Matt Rule, it's just, it's football season. It's time to shut the fuck up and start winning some games and analyze the game itself and stop dicking around. For all the turmoil that, that Tepper has either put himself through or, or has been aggrieved within for <laughs> wherever his perspective might be. Um, David Tepper, it's, it, from the outside looking in, it, it feels like it's been a, a, an interesting, maybe turbulent ride, but maybe that's not his view on it. Maybe Tepper lives in that world. It's volatile and he's fine with it. Um, it's different. I mean, you want some consistency, but that's not the football side. You get the football thing going, then, then people stop staring at this other crap. The headquarters will get built when it gets built. I could give a shit about that. No offense today, but that's his billions. And, you know, I'm, I'm the biggest Matt Rule stand with a clean slate right now. Because I'll say it again. What you don't want to have to go through again is a situation where you're on the fence about what to do with Matt Rule. Oh, he's won six games and oh, they're getting a little better, but kind of got worn down at the end. You want Matt Rule to take off and get this thing figured out and become a coach that's known for, okay, there was something good about Matt Rule that was transferable from the college ranks to the pro game. You don't want a mannequin standing there, basically, with no strategic essence or soul emanating from within. Otherwise, you are a placeholder for the staff around you doing the dirty work. So what I'm wanting to see from this season is wins. I don't care how they get them. We have talked about process for three fucking years. It's time to start winning. You have installed your process. You have installed your culture. That needs to start working. And no matter what I feel about it, I am not in charge of hiring or firing a damn person. But I will be dancing in the streets, singing Matt Rule's name, singing his praises, if he goes on and takes his team to the playoffs. And I'll give him every bounce of credit he deserves for that. It's never personal. 
It's a results thing, man. And I'm excited for him because he seems like, okay, I've finally got something here that might work. The path getting here was a little awkward. It, Baker Mayfield at the 11th hour on a reduced salary. Okay, it's, that's certainly interesting, but we've known that since the draft that they were chewing on that. <laughs> what a run they've, they've made for a quarterback. They, they tried to get Deshaun, and we, we've been through this. Speaking of which, Deshaun is looking at uh, potentially a longer suspension now, but doesn't affect the Carolina game in which uh, Jacoby Brissett will likely be the starter with a very good running game coming to town. And we'll start sizing that up for you as we continue our training camp coverage. I want to remind you, tomorrow we'll have another episode for you previewing this weekend's practices, bring you some sound and audio from training camp. And by the way, we are one day away from an NFL game on TV. Hall of Fame game. And Sam Mills goes into the Hall of Fame this weekend. And by the way, next week, the Panthers will be on a football field. I don't know if there'll be a real grass or not, but it'll be a football field. For my co-host, Billy Marshall, who is still vacationing. And for our good friends at Blue Wire, I am John Ellis. Y'all have a great night. We'll do this again tomorrow. Go Panthers. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.